Special guest Dan Haverty. Dan is an editorial fellow at Foreign Policy Magazine, a prestigious foreign policy publication. He received his bachelor's degree in political science from the College of the Holy Cross and also holds a master's in international relations from University College Cork, where he conducted research on the peace process in Northern Ireland. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So Dan recently authored, he's the author of numerous articles on a consistent basis in foreign policy, but the one that stood out to me recently was an article he co-authored called Could the Pandemic Kill the United Kingdom? And he walks through the impact of the COVID-19 crisis and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, uh, his handling of the of the response, and seeing how that might impact the historical push for Irish reunification, as well as Scottish independence. But we're going to in particular focus on the Irish question today. Dan, could you walk through the listeners on sort of a, a brief summary of what the article consists of? And we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so essentially the article, as is posed in the title, uh, seeks to answer the question whether or not the coronavirus makes, um, well, the article itself talks about whether or not the coronavirus makes the breakup of the United Kingdom more likely. Um, And we focused in on Scotland and the question of Scottish independence and Northern Ireland and the question of Irish unification. So over the course of the last few years, since Uh, the Brexit referendum, there has been an increased push for Irish unity. um, And that's in part because, I mean, there's always been an organized, uh, robust, very vocal unity movement in Northern Ireland. Um, But it wasn't really taken, I, I shouldn't say it wasn't taken seriously, but for a large majority of the people in Northern Ireland, it just wasn't a realistic prospect. But that's changed since Brexit because even though a majority of the United Kingdom voted to leave the EU, a majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to stay in the EU. And that's significant because, well, first of all, Northern Ireland is going to leave the EU essentially against its will. But Northern Ireland has benefited substantially from its EU membership both in terms of the direct funding that it receives from the EU, but also um, in terms of the cross-border trade that is developed with the Republic of Ireland because of the open border policies. And so the question about Irish unity has become a lot more relevant because people have, have sort of, they see it as a way of maintaining uh, Northern Ireland's EU membership by joining the Republic of Ireland. Now, EU officials gave credence to this to this argument by saying that if, in the event of Irish unity, Northern Ireland would seamlessly retain its EU membership. So they wouldn't have to reapply. Um, they could literally just become, but the next day they would just become EU members again. And, and your article mentions the historical example of how East Germany was easily and readily incorporated into the structure of the West German government without having to go through a long Byzantine process of, of new application as if it was a new country. Yep, exactly. And a lot of our Irish nationalists have cited the, the example of Germany to say, see, it's been done before, we could easily do it again. And there's legitimacy to that. Now, the coronavirus adds weight to this argument because it's yet another example of the British government 
sort of bumbling through another crisis, appearing to be very incompetent, unable to sort of handle crises, whereas the Irish government has received much, much praise for its handling of the coronavirus. And based on the numbers, it it seems to have been a, a lot more effective too. And so now it's not quite as big as um, Brexit. I think Brexit is still in the forefront of people's minds, especially with regards to Irish unification. But now a lot of people are looking at the coronavirus and saying, this is just another reason why we can't trust the British government. And so it sort of, it adds to a whole litany of things that are really starting to change people's attitudes towards the British government, towards the Irish government, and about the constitutional question or constitutional status of Northern Ireland. So what I find particularly interesting in this article that, that you mentioned, just kind of zeroing in on, on the pandemic first, was for many nationalists in Northern Ireland, you write, the pandemic has exposed the folly of running two separate health and political administrations on the same island. Could you sort of expand on how Northern Ireland, in many respects, in many respects was criticized for seemingly waiting on directions from London to how would the national UK response take shape instead of, you know, more readily utilizing those devolved powers uh, to match uh, the, the South's uh, ready response to the pandemic? How was that? How was that received in Northern Ireland? Well, it's, it's an interesting question, because a lot of it boils down to the way that each side perceive each community perceives itself um, within the broader Anglo-Irish uh, international structure. So Ireland, as you know, is a very, very small country. And so developments that happen in development, developments that happen anywhere in the island tend to be island wide. And that's especially true with a global pandemic. So it was seen that and in addition to that, Ireland is an island. And so it has sort of sort of geographical characteristics that do make it stand out from other parts of the world. Right. So, like, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to close borders on an island than it is to close borders in the section of, of a continent. For a lot of nationalists, and a lot of people in general, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense that this one very, very small section of the island was taking a different approach to a crisis that was affecting the entire entire island equally. And not only that, but for a lot of people, it made a lot more sense to, to address the problem as an island itself, rather than one part doing what the other island was doing and the rest of the island was doing. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to so people. So it sort of exposes the folly of an artificial line that doesn't match geography. It does. It does. And that and that's how a lot of people saw it. But as... It, in Northern Ireland is, is a very peculiar place politically because it's, it's very, very rare for there to be an issue... Um, for there to be a political or even a social or an economic issue that doesn't have some relation to the constitutional question. Um, and so any issue that, that comes to the fore of uh, any politician's mind is always, always passes through those sort of ethno-national political lenses. Um, and so people are looking at this and not only saying what's the best way of approaching the, the virus, but they were also saying, What's the best way of approaching the virus without threatening our position on the constitutional question? And so a lot of unionists would have believed privately that it does make the most sense to address the coronavirus as an island-wide unit. But they worried that within the context of Brexit, if Northern Ireland 
alliance with the Republic of Ireland on this crisis and not the rest of the UK, then that would, in a, in a very subtle way, dilute the union between Northern Ireland and Britain. And that's unfathomable to unionists. That's their number one red line issue always. And so they, they took the British government's approach. Um, and it just, it made the crisis, it, made, it, it politicized the crisis. So this, this comes on the heels of several years of, of back and forth that's created what appears to be a considerable amount of political controversy and, and geopolitical turmoil generally, starting with David Cameron's decision as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom some years ago to hold a Brexit referendum, which was widely believed to uh, result in a Remain vote, where the UK would remain inside Europe. In fact, some people have accused Prime Minister Cameron of setting it up as sort of a foregone conclusion, just to silence uh, the Eurosceptics and his own party, then to be yep. shocked by the actual departure of the United Kingdom by a Leave vote. Um, and of course, as you said, Northern Ireland voting uh, as a as a subunit, overwhelmingly to remain inside of the European Union uh, for purposes of easy relations with the South. Transitioning into Prime Minister May's time uh, in office, you saw the um, Democratic Unionist Party uh, actually in a confidence and supply agreement. Uh, with her government as as part of a almost ruling coalition. When her government fell and Boris Johnson came to power, called new elections, he won an outright conservative majority in London uh, late last year, uh, no longer needs the Democratic Unionist Party's explicit support to pass uh, legislation in relation to Brexit negotiations. So is there a sliding of influence in your mind for Northern Ireland? Do they feel that they're being progressively cut out of this process as they near a deadline at the end of the year where if Mr. Johnson cannot negotiate a proper Brexit withdrawal agreement on a, on a trade basis with the EU, then they will go out on WTO rules. And that raises the question of a hard border between the northern half of the island and the southern half of the island because there won't be a free trade zone. So there's this, there's this looming deadline and there's also seems to be a slipping amount of political influence. How is that, how is that all converging in Northern Ireland? Well, it's interesting because the unionists in Northern Ireland have historically always had a very close relationship with the Conservative Party, um, and that dates back to the late 1800s. Um, and in fact, the full name of the Conservative Party is actually the Conservative and Unionist Party, um, and that's sort of a reflection of those close ties. And so there's always been uh, a sympathy for unionism within the Conservative Party, and you'll find in history that often when um, unionist interests in Northern Ireland are threatened, it's actually the Conservative Party that sort of comes into the rescue. Um, you'll see that most prominently displayed by, by Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s. Now, we're in an interesting time because for, for people like me who, who study this issue closely, it was not surprising at all that the Conservative Party sought DUP support. What is Somewhat surprising. I shouldn't even say surprising because unionists are, are are always worried that the British government is going to sell them out. Um, and if they they've always believed instinctively that if the if Britain's interests clashed with unionist interests, then Britain's interests would go first. And, and I think they have good reason to to believe that. And so this has come to the fore because DUP support was obviously needed uh, in Parliament because the Conservatives wouldn't have had a majority without the DUP. And so they needed it to, to 
be able to do anything uh, in that parliament. But obviously, once Boris Johnson won uh, his his enormous mandate in December, then the DUP wasn't needed. Now, the DUP complicated things because the DUP was actually open to uh, a soft border. They, they recognized the benefits of cross-border trade in Ireland, and they said several times that they were open to a soft border. But their red line was that no, no Brexit deal could treat Northern Ireland differently than the rest of the UK. Now, Boris Johnson's deal did just that because the EU wasn't going to let the UK leave. Well, it was it, it was a it was a tangled mess. So, the Republic of Ireland held it up because they weren't going to let the e, the UK leave if it was going to erect borders. A lot of people in the UK voted for Brexit because they wanted borders, but you can't have borders between the UK and the EU, but have an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, which is what Ireland and the EU wanted. So it created this mess of interests. And when it came down to it, Boris Johnson showed that the unionists were essentially right, which is that when British, when the interest, when London's interests clashed with unionist interests, London would go first. And there are several polls that indicate uh, conservative voters, the public broadly, but especially conservative voters, are willing to let Northern Ireland leave the UK if it means um, leaving the UK, uh, leaving the EU on their terms. So there's a willingness to trade that historic unity with Northern Ireland if it means getting out of Brussels and not being beholden to the EU superstructure going forward. For many and for a growing number of people in the Conservative Party, yes, that's that's the case. So this brings us to one of the last points we'll cover in the podcast, which often doesn't receive a ton of publication in, in international relations circles, which is what is the British perspective and willingness when it comes to offering a referendum? There's a lot of talk regarding whether or not Northern Ireland will request one, whether or not there will be a, a democratic upswell from the populace to reunite with the South. But, did, you know, again, back to the example of David Cameron, you know, he was the referendum king in some respects. He not only gave the Brexit referendum, he also gave the Scottish independence referendum, uh, which much to the dismay of the Scottish Nationalist Party uh, resulted in Scotland remaining inside the UK. Um, yeah. Do you see Prime Minister Boris Johnson being willing to have an Irish referendum? Um, and and what does what does it look like as a willingness for them to let go of Northern Ireland should they vote to leave? It's really hard to say. And that's because there are a lot of sort of legal hoops that are surrounding a referendum because it is enshrined in the Good Friday Agreement. The first thing I should say is that in Ireland, it is an open secret that if the British government could get rid of Northern Ireland and wipe its hands clean of of the country, it would do it tomorrow. Um, It has, it's, it's been a very complicated matter for British politicians well, since since the troubles began, it's been a complicated matter for British politicians. But even before Ireland was partitioned, issues related to Irish independence, land reform, um, nationalism in Ireland broadly have been a problem in a major a major uh, thorn in the side of British politicians dating back centuries. And so there is there is an open desire in London to get rid of Northern Ireland if it can. 
Now, it's hard. They can't just do it. And part of the reason is because a plurality of people in Northern Ireland do still want, first of all, they identify as British. So they consider themselves to be part of the British nation. But they also want Northern Ireland to stay a part of the UK. And this is a group that historically has organized and armed and shown that they are willing to go to war, even with British soldiers, in order to defend Northern Ireland's uh, position in the UK. And so everybody is aware that if you just if you just hold a referendum, knowing that it could be close, it could cause more problems than it solves because there's peace now. There's been peace for over 20 years. Um, there's no... The conditions aren't really there to suggest that that peace could break down anytime soon. But if you change the goalposts, so to speak, then there is that threat exists. In the Good Friday Agreement, there is so this, this makes it a little bit different than a Scottish independence referendum or even the Brexit referendum, in that the Good Friday Agreement allows for the British government to hold a referendum if the um, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland believes that there is a sufficient um, degree of support in favor of unity that could suggest a border poll would pass. Now, it's unclear how, it's, based on the Good Friday Agreement, it seems that that's totally up to the Secretary of State's uh, discretion. There's no real way to, to say how he's able to make that uh, determination. So there's questions around that. The other thing is that the British government and the Irish government agree to affect in law the outcome of that referendum. So theoretically, if the Brexit referendum had passed, the British government was not legally bound to reflect the wish of reflect the wish that was expressed in the referendum. They theoretically could have said, "Okay, we recognize that you voted for Brexit, but we are not going to actually implement Brexit." They can't do that with with unity. And so it's a little bit of a different question because it's, it's real, it's legally binding, um, and it would likely cause uh, turmoil in Northern Ireland. Boris Johnson himself, I, I, I doubt that he, I mean, based on those uh, restrictions, I don't think, I don't think any prime minister in the current circumstances would do it. Boris Johnson in particular has shown himself to be um, sympathetic to unionists. Um, and so I, I, I can't really see him doing it there is the question of course that you could do it and then get rid of northern ireland and and pursue brexit on your own but of course there's no guarantee that a a unity referendum would pass um and and most polls suggest that it would it would fail and so you run the risk of needless needlessly antagonizing potential allies in northern ireland and only making things worse so my sense is that they'll continue to pursue the current course even with the constrictions that Northern Ireland impose, just because of the threat of the instability that holding a referendum could mean. So as the last two questions that we'll have, and then we'll wrap this up. What about from Brussels' perspective? Would you say there is a, an explicitly European stance on this question, or do they view this as an internal struggle within the British Isles generally? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's... I think they see it as a matter between... The UK and Ireland. Um, I think Brussels is probably 
they probably genuinely want to see peace in Northern Ireland, and the Good Friday Agreement is an international agreement that Brussels obviously recognizes, so they are a guarantor in some sense, and the Good Friday Agreement does sort of, or Brexit, I should say, poses a challenge to the Good Friday Agreement because one of the stipulations in the Good Friday Agreement was that the border between the two parts of Ireland would remain open and unobstructed, which Brexit obviously uh, causes problems for. And so in that sense, uh, I think Brussels has an interest in keeping the border open. Brussels obviously has an interest in keeping the UK as close as possible to the EU. But So I think I don't think there's an explicit position on it from Brussels. Um, they are looking at it, I think, as, as pragmatically as um, any politician with no personal interest would. So, last question. If you were to hazard a guess in a year that's already brought us a once-in-a-century pandemic, where, where do you see this entire process uh, June of next year, uh, after the deadline passes on December 31st for Britain's negotiations? I'm not going to hold you to accuracy, but just from your experience, from your academic studies, what, what would you say would be the, the most likely outcome in regards to Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, their positions with the UK, with the EU, uh, the question of reunification this time, you know, June 1st next year. June 1st next year, I would, based on what we know, based on the the apparent trends, um, and then obviously accounting for just sheer prediction and guesswork, um, I would say that the, the question of Irish unity will be significantly advanced in a year's time. It, it's looking more and more like there's going to be a hard border and that the UK is essentially going to crash out of the EU, even though they have the guidelines in place already. It's, it's looking like they're going to leave without a, a post-Brexit deal. Um, in which case the Good Friday agreement would be undermined, um, and nationalists would be significantly antagonized. And I think a lot of people that are considered agnostic on the constitutional question will be, will feel like Irish unity is the best path forward. Now, on the other side of the Irish border, we haven't talked about it yet, but there are very uh, noteworthy developments taking place there, too. Um, Go ahead and run through those if you, if you have the time. I would love to hear your opinion on those as well. Yeah, absolutely. Sinn Féin, which is the largest nationalist party in Northern Ireland, um, the former political wing of the provisional Irish Republican Army, widely considered to be sort of the most energetic and determined to unite the the island of Ireland into a single entity. They actually just performed remarkably well in the Irish general election in February. Um, They came within one seat of being the largest party in Dáil Éireann, the Irish parliament. And if I'm remembering correctly, they won the most first preference votes of any party. This is significant, one, because it's the first time uh, in the history of the state that any party besides the two biggest parties, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, have won the most popular votes. And it's the first time that there's a realistic prospect of any party besides those two parties uh, leading a government in Ireland. Now, based on the way that the government formation talks are growing because they haven't formed a government yet. It appears Sinn Féin won't form, won't lead the next government, but they could lead the opposition, which is significant. 
and they're likely to leave the opposition because the two parties are in negotiations together. So they're likely to leave the opposition. But the government formation talks are teetering. They, some people think that they're not going to get a deal. I think they'll probably get a deal on the table, but that deal has to pass um, a membership vote in Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, and the Greens, who are also ne- negotiating this deal, based on conversations I've had with people in... I, I don't know many people in Fine Gael, but based on conversations I've had with people in Fianna Fáil and the Greens, it doesn't look like it'll pass um, a party convention, which it would obviously have to pass all three, so just having one not on board is enough. I think Fine Gael would be happy to see the, the, the talks collapse because I don't think they're that enthusiastic about going into government again. And so if the talks do break down and no government is formed, then there'll be another election probably this fall. Now, that's significant because Sinn Féin performed extreme historically well in February, but they actually... They, they took a very conservative approach to the election because in local elections last year and EU elections last year, they performed very badly. Um, and so they didn't put as many candidates out as they might have otherwise because they were just in a position of, of I think, waiting and seeing. And so many of their candidates, you know, had, had I don't know how familiar you are with the proportional representation voting system, but many of their I, candidates... I played the fifth. Had, well think of it this way if Sinn Féin I won't go into all the details but the way that the system worked out if Sinn Féin had run even twice the number of candidates that they did some people estimate that they could have won 15 to 20 more seats than they actually did based on just the same numbers of of votes that they were getting and so their poll numbers are just as high now people are just as excited about Sinn Féin people are actually starting to get frustrated with Fianna Fáil and their numbers have dropped significantly. And so the, the general feeling is that if there is another election in, in the in the near future, Sinn Féin will probably do significantly better than they did in February. And that was an election when they already did historically well. So we could What's, very well... What is the likelihood of another election if if the current government top talks fail within the next year? Oh, if the current government talks fail, it's it's almost a foregone conclusion because... No party has even close to a majority. Um, my sense is that the three parties negotiating right now, it's the only feasible, it's, it's, they represent the only feasible majority. Um, it's really, really, really difficult to see any other parties forming a majority together. And so if, if the current round of talks fail, it's almost a certainty that there'll be an election. And if there's an election, it's, an, it's a, I shouldn't say a near certainty, but it's, it's very, very, uh, probable that Sinn Féin will be the largest party and they'll be leading the government formation talks. And so, so if, by the end of if this Sinn year, Féin were to, to, if that scenario were to play out and Sinn Féin were to become the largest party, the governing, the governing party, yep. do they become Ireland's equivalent of the Scottish National Party once, once in office, emboldened to really push this issue of unification all the way to London? Yep, definitely. They're, they're, in, in the nationalist sense, they are the SMP's equivalent in Ireland. So if, if this all plays out and it looks like that is how it'll play out, um, then we could have a situation by the end of this year 
where Northern Ireland is getting the absolute worst possible of Brexit deals, and Sinn Féin is leading the government in Dublin and part of the government in, in Northern Ireland. Um, and if that's the case, then the, the Irish unification will, will be closer than it's ever been in, in the 100 years of partition. So your prediction for June 1st is a very likely Irish unification debate taking place and nearing its, its foregone conclusion to reunify the island. Would that be a fair, fair assessment? Yeah, I think, I think the debate has begun already because um, as soon as Brexit happened, it, the question became legitimate and re- relevant. So the debate has been ongoing. Sinn Féin in office leading a government in Dublin and also leading a government in Belfast means that um, the debate will be had at the at the you know in the, in the halls of power at the very highest levels of government. The debate will will certainly pick up steam. It'll it'll probably be something that's talked about in mainstream circles much much more regularly. I I am reluctant to say that we'll be. We'll, we'll certainly be closer to Irish unification. I'm reluctant to say that we'll actually be close to it because of all the, the constraints that I mentioned already. And I think Sinn Féin is, is going to push as hard as they can for unity, but they're cognizant of the limitations. Um, there's also the risk that they, that they force a border poll now and lose the border poll because, first of all, that would take a lot of steam um, out of their, put, out of their, their campaign. But it also means that because of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, you have to wait seven years after having one referendum to have a second referendum. So they might jump the gun now, and then let's say in a year from now, we know the outcome of Brexit. It's a horrible disaster. The Northern Irish economy has collapsed. Let's say Scotland is, is preparing to leave the UK, and Northern Ireland has to wait another six years for a referendum, And by which time things might have stabilized and you, you lose the vote. People in Sinn Féin are cognizant of this. They know that that, that, that possibility exists. Um, I think they're going to take a cautious approach to it, despite how they sort of present themselves publicly. And so by June of, this, of, of next year, I could, I could see the, the debate being something that is, is regularly discussed, a border poll being something that's regularly discussed. Um, but I would say it's, we're, we would probably still be another few years away from actually seeing a border poll. And so to follow this information uh, as it continues to progress forward, I would strongly suggest uh, everyone as listeners to subscribe to Foreign Policy Magazine uh, and that we can read all of uh, Dan's uh, articles as they come. Also, you can find him on Twitter at Dan underscore Haverty, H-A-V-E-R-T-Y. Uh, would you suggest any other good sources of information for those who are interested in watching this process unfold, perhaps uh, Irish sources that they could follow, newspapers? You know, the, the Irish newspapers will, will cover this issue on, on whenever it, it's relevant. So the Belfast Telegraph, I find a, a, to be a good unionist northern Irish paper. Um, the Irish News is a very good nationalist um, paper in Northern Ireland. The Irish Times is sort of the Ireland's um, paper of record, and they'll, they'll discuss these issues when they crop up. Um, Irish Central is is a, a New York-based platform, but they, they cover Irish issues. I actually write for them quite frequently. Um, they do a, a, a pretty good job of, of covering this issue, too. So, yeah, those, those are some... some Four solid sources if you're interested in, in following the issue. 
Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Your wealth of information on Ireland. I'm sure all of our listeners will be uh, heading over to your Twitter to follow you and keep an eye on this issue as it unfolds over the course of the next year. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Garrison. It's been a, a really fun and interesting conversation.